Welcome to Forward. I'm your host, Alison Innes, and today's episode is one from our vault. We spoke with Julie Gemmond, an artist researcher in our Interdisciplinary Humanities PhD program last summer, and we're glad to be bringing you this conversation now. When you think of research in the humanities, you might think of printed papers, books, and journal articles. But that's only one way we share our research. The process of research creation combines academic research with artistic creation and can help give us a more comprehensive understanding of human experience and knowledge. Julie shares with us how she is using research creation to explore what it means to be human and to think about how art can help us forge new strategies for living with each other in our current world. Our conversation ranges from the Anthropocene and posthumanism to serialism and automatism. And if you're not quite sure what any of those words mean, don't worry, Julie demystifies them for us. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you. I'm very pleased to have you with us today. Maybe we can just start with you telling me a little bit about your research creation project, um, what it is, and kind of what your themes and, and ideas are that you're that you're exploring with that. Okay, well, um, why don't I start off with explaining what a research creation project is? Because I think really before I entered the program, I wasn't even sure myself. So it's basically an approach to generating knowledge, not only through academic research, but in and through creative practice. So this approach sort of embraces creative practice as a legitimate form of knowledge production. The idea here is that there are sort of ways of knowing and doing that grow through the experience and practice of art and that offer a different kind of knowledge, but one that is complementary to academic research. So I think those of us who are drawn to this approach really believe that art holds the capacity to give voice to what is unspeakable elsewhere. Um, And that through this combination of academic research and artistic creation, we might be able to uncover a more comprehensive understanding of our world and our place within it. So I guess, I mean, research creation projects can take all sorts of forms. They typically link the humanities and the sciences with art and design. So, you know, you could have someone researching in the field of psychology and producing a work of photographic art. You could have someone working in biology and sculpture or in my case, my work is interdisciplinary. So I draw on a couple different disciplines, um, post-humanism, new materialism, and art history. And then in conjunction with that, I'll produce an audio visual installation. Is there a written component? There is, yeah. So, so I kind of find the separation between research and creation to be a little bit problematic. Um, the first couple years of the interdisciplinary humanities program uh, were very much focused on the research side of things. And this was very important for me because my, um, my education up until that point had been dedicated to studio art practice. So I didn't really have much in the way of intensive theoretical exposure, but it also meant that I sort of became 
out of touch with making art in those first two years. So this is partly because of the way the program is set up, which um, I think is necessary because not all students in the program are pursuing research creation projects. And it's partly because of my uh, lack, really lack of experience in academia that I felt like I had to focus on um, the research and that the creation would come later. So the, the capstone project, which is like the final project that I'll make, my research creation project that I'll make and then defend in order to earn my PhD, it's composed of a 100 to 150 page written scholarly text. So that would be the dissertation portion. It's sort of a compressed dissertation. I think if you follow the sort of traditional dissertation route, it's something like 300 to 350 pages. So I'll do a written scholarly text and then um, also a body of artwork. But the, the reason that I kind of find it problematic is that for me, I don't know, the division is a little bit tricky to navigate because I want to envision these two components without such defined boundaries. I sort of want them to overlap and bleed into each other, like to share blood like family. And I've, I've often thought about this process um, like an ecosystem, you know, where research impacts creation and vice versa and back again, and where sometimes research is creation or creation is research, really like an entangled web. But as it stands right now, I sort of, it feels a little bit more contained and sequential. So like, as I was explaining, the research comes first and that's followed by the creation, you know, the end. <laughs> but that, that's, <laughs> That's very reductive, actually, because the program does have limitations for good reasons, but it's also very flexible. So it's really what I make of it, too. Right. So I'm I'm working on that, thinking about it. <laughs> so what are the questions and themes that you're looking at with the research and creation? So I, I kind of have three central questions. The first is, um, what does it mean to be human in the age of Anthropocene? The second is, uh, what new ethical paradigms can be introduced through the reconceptualization of bodies as interconnected and inextricable from the physical world? And the third is, um, what role can art play in not only learning about our challenged planet, but in forging new strategies for living with others in the yet to come. So the first question, what does it mean to be human um, at this time? I think maybe I'll, I'll define the Anthropocene first. So the Anthropocene, I sort of see it as like a, a new chapter in the story of the earth, which sort of began around 1950. That date is contested, but let's say 1950, basically with the fallout from nuclear bombs. And the Anthropocene, it, it's both a scientific concept, right? It's a geological era and it conveys the dramatic transformation of our planet by human activities. But it's also a human dilemma, one that really throws our relationship with nature into relief. So, you know, rapid 
technological intervention, along with accelerating population growth and consumption over the latter half of the 20th century, um, have really affected ecosystems at unprecedented scales. So we have, you know, industrial agriculture, deforestation, biodiversity loss, resource extraction, ocean acidification. I mean, these are all a result of human-made or uh, anthropogenic changes that have destabilized the Earth system, and they've ushered in a new era, right? The Anthropocene. So this question, what does it mean to be human at this particular time, I think can be answered in so many different ways. But I'll, I'll say that it means sort of experiencing a sense of power as well as a sense of powerlessness at once. So some of the ways we feel empowered, um, technology and globalization have really made it possible, albeit sometimes irresponsible, uh, to get almost anything we want in, here in the Western world by click, clicking a, you know, a few buttons on our keyboards. And together we've really, we've changed the climate, right? Um, we've driven species to extinction, we've acidified the ocean. From this standpoint, humans have never been more powerful. But there's also this really kind of strong undertow that pulls us in the opposite direction, which is a, a sense of the loss of agency, a kind of impotency. And the main kind of obstacle um, to taking action on climate change seems to be this deep sense of its inevitability and our, our powerlessness to affect its course. So we feel this sense of hopeless defeatism, as in like it's too late, there's no sense in trying to make anything better. Now this is just one narrative. I mentioned that the Anthropocene is a new chapter in the story of the earth, but I, I also think that we need to radically alter the kinds of stories we tell. I think we need new storylines of kinship in the present, not just in the past or in the future, but in the here and now. Um, stories that can kind of double as maps um, that can be sort of traced and followed towards a future that um, hopefully avoids impending ruin. I, one of my favorite theorists, Donna Haraway, uh, for her, the future sort of requires unexpected collaborations and combinations of making stories and thus making new worlds. So the second one was, you know, was about reconceptualizing the body as interconnected and inextricable from the, the world around us. And I approach this through sort of understanding the skin as a physical membrane that sheds and reconstitutes itself continually. So the flesh is conceived of as a contour that's in process all the time. It's permeable and it's shifting. So in other words, we let the world in whether we want to or not. And so I, I address this vulnerability through Stacey Alimo's concept of transcorporeality. And this basically emphasizes the human body as a site across which um, substances and forces are constantly crossing. 
and by which human beings are inseparable from the environment, you know, both the natural environment and the built or, or the man-made environment. So this means not only are we physically vulnerable, but we're also responsible to other beings. And thinking this way encourages us to reimagine questions of environmental ethics and environmental practices as deeply personal. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what is safe? What is not safe? How do we know? And this kind of thinking, it really changes how we move around in the world, sort of begin to think through the fact that there are myriad like harmful and also sometimes helpful uh, invisible substances from viruses to manufactured chemicals. So yeah, transcorporeality is, it really kind of reveals that the environment and our material selves are bound up with one another um, in a deeply intimate manner and also encourages a a reconsideration, (laughs) a reconsideration of ourselves as complicated um, messy, entangled beings. Entangled. And our, our listeners uh, wanting to explore more on the idea of entanglement uh, can certainly listen to our interview with Christine Daigle, um, where we talk about posthumanism and entanglement and dig into that. Christine is my supervisor. So <laughs> there you go. It's perfect podcast listening. <laughs> yeah, a nice pair. Okay. And and quickly, the, the last question um, that my research is centered around is is really about the role that art can play. And I I think I'm gonna really address this through the the idea of defamiliarization. So this is a it's a methodological practice that has been more recently revived by feminist and postcolonial theory, but it really comes down to us originally as one of the central ideas of German and English Romanticism. And and so defamiliarization uh, from that point of view really addresses this kind of pervasive problem of conventionalization, which is can be psychologically alienating or anesthetizing. And um, therefore, romanticists really believe that we sort of stood in need of some sort of aesthetic shock to break us out of this anesthesia, this kind of numbing. So I'm really interested in using defamiliarization as a part of my methodology because I believe its application, not only in creative practice, but also in critical theory, can help us to draw out the strange in the familiar and thus sort of break the cycle of sameness that permeates our modern lives. So it really kind of encourages us to estrange ourselves from dominant normative visions of the self and of the world uh, that we've become accustomed to. And I think, I think, you know, this, this problem of anesthetization or, or numbness that we suffer from has really metastasized as a, a kind of gradual forgetting, forgetting of who we are and our place in the world. And so you know, just to sort of bring this to a more practical level, perspective taking is one really wonderful way to achieve defamiliarization, you know, to kind of shift our perspectives to see through the eyes of of another. And art is, of course, such a great vessel for defamiliarization. 
And, you know, it, it really has the power to kind of change perspectives and even restore those numbed zones to feeling. And also defamiliarization is really about a reorientation of attention. So where we place our attention is a choice that we consciously and and should carefully make. So how we choose to think and the thoughts to which we tend, they really determine the way that we engage with the world, right? So we when we focus our attention on something, initially, well, we're doing something, but initially we kind of hold the object of our attention without comment, without praise or blame, just with a kind of momentary open care. And in that moment, a space of empathy is created. And empathy, like attention, it's not something that just sort of happens to us. It's also a choice that we make, you know, to to pay attention and to extend ourselves. So I think this reorientation of attention, it can really connect us to others in the world. And it sparks empathy as well, which really makes room for the lived realities of others whose depths can be just as complex as our own. This this feels really timely because it feels like what we've seen just in the news in terms of pandemic responses, the occupation that we saw in Ottawa, this individualization that we've become more focused on ourselves as individuals rather than our connections. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, our world sort of hems us in to these places of individuation, as you say. I mean, even if we look at social media platforms and the way the algorithms kind of work to capture our attention in order to sell us something and they put us into this kind of loop um, so that what we see in our feeds are based on the other things that we we click on and that we like and we interact with. And it sort of prevents us from really encountering things outside of that realm that might, you know, change us in 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 really significant and positive ways. So yeah, I, I completely agree with your sentiment. One of our professors refers to that as uh, our filter bubbles that we each wind up living in and everybody's bubble is a little bit different from everybody else's. So you mentioned um, that you're going to be doing some audiovisual work as part of the creative process. So, and I know that you're you're still uh, still early days, I suppose. You've still got a, a little ways to go with this project. But what are you envisioning with it? If I were to walk into a gallery, what do you think I would see? What would you want me to experience? Well, I sort of imagine that it's. So a multi-channel audio visual installation, which basically means that there will be a number of projections or screens, I'm thinking six. And and I'm yeah, I'm not entirely sure what kind of other elements of installation there there might be, but I know that video will be sort of a central video and sound will be a central aspect. And what I'm planning to do is is to work with a number of participants or maybe collaborators is a better word. Collaborators that sort of might self-identify as hypersensitive individuals. 
and this is a very broad category. So it could be uh, people that have, you know, environmental allergies, and then even more extreme, there are some, there are groups of people that identify as environmentally ill or having a condition called multiple chemical sensitivity. And this is sort of like being allergic to the 20th or the 21st century. People that find it very difficult to navigate and live in the world with sort of pesticides being sprayed all over their neighbor's lawns and any kind of toxicity running through the air. There's a sort of adjacent condition called sick building syndrome, um, where people actually feel ill and kind of allergic to places of work, for example, which makes life extremely difficult. So those are some examples. I also just came across um, a woman online the other day, Charlotte King is her name, and she senses earthquakes in her body. So she's very sensitive to the vibrations of the earth. And in fact, she has sort of connected different geographical locations to different parts of her body, like feeling those locations or those the vibrations in those locations in certain parts of her body. Um, so these are all examples of the kind of individual that I hope to collaborate with. And the idea is to sort of work together for a year or two and sort of record conversations and explorations in environments that make them feel both good and bad and record video footage. And then after all this sort of groundwork is done, we would then compose a kind of a narrative, but a narrative in movement or a sort of dance that the participant will perform and I'll record and, and will also be part of the, the final installation. And what I'm hoping is that this, all of this work and the sort of final dance performance, I, I hesitate to call it a dance because I, I, it, I don't think it'll be very dancey. It'll sort of be more movement-based. But um, the kind of hope is that it will ameliorate in some ways their condition or harmonize it or help them to sort of process what's happening to them and and, and their place in the world. So that's a pretty long-winded explanation for someone that doesn't really know what they're doing yet. <laughs> but yeah, that's the gist. It's very, it. it's very interesting. It's very interesting for sure. So You've mentioned already your work is interdisciplinary. Um, it's right there in the title of the program that you're in. So what kinds of disciplines, what kinds of areas do you draw on for this? We've alluded to posthumanism in terms of interconnection. What bits and pieces are you pulling together? Yes, posthumanism is a big one. Now, posthumanism is, is a philosophical perspective, right? Uh, but it's also informed by post-structuralism, feminism, and critical race studies, and techno-science studies. And it also draws upon discourses such as animal studies, monster studies, disability studies. Um, so it's already inherently very interdisciplinary. But basically, post-humanism rejects human exceptionalism by calling attention to the ways in which the human is codependent and 
also mutually evolving with animals, uh, with machines, with the world at large. It also critiques like the privileging of reason and rationality and sort of highlights other ways of knowing, intuitive ways of knowing, embodied, subjective ways of knowing. So rather than seeing the human as a rational being, which tends to separate the mind from the, from the body and also nature from culture, or the human as universal. So this idea that the human, the ideal human is male, white, European, able-bodied. Posthumanism sees the human um, instead as a hybrid. So it, the human is constituted of those very things that were excluded in the attempt to define the human. So the animal um, or the other. For posthumanism, the human is really more of an inclusive entity um, whose boundaries with the world are very porous. And I think actually this, this kind of thinking really best suits the Anthropocene. So while posthumanism focuses on decentering the human, the Anthropocene marks the impact of human activity on the planet and thus stresses the urgency of humans to become more aware of their entanglement with ecosystems. Because of course, not when ecosystems are damaged, that also negatively affects the human condition, right? Some of the other, I mean, new materialism is, is another um, field of study that I draw upon. It definitely shares an agenda with posthumanism insofar as they both seek a repositioning of the human via like a critical attention to matter, to the vibrancy of matter. So, you know, this this focus that we have on human ideas, human will, human action, it really kind of makes the rest of the planet seem passive. But new materialism actually emphasizes the agencies and activities of matter. So, for example, say we build a series of dams to control water, but the water doesn't always heed to those parameters, right? The water eventually will do what it wants for whatever reason. And so this kind of resistance can be seen as the world pushing back against the idea that humans are the only entities with agency. And I suppose we see this with some of our climate change and some of the impacts that we're seeing on structures that we've built to protect us from from the environment. Yeah, you know, matter is like not inert. It's not like just these static objects that we wield our power over. Karen Barad talks about how matter is or materials are not just little bits of passive nature or a blank state. Materials are always on their way to sort of transforming or becoming something else. And if we pay attention to these, like just little instances in our lives, right? Like if you put a waxy, a wax candle on your windowsill in the middle of summer and it's facing, you know, the south and the sun is beating it on it all day, that wax candle will, will change its form, right? And then, I'm, I mean, this one's kind of obvious, like the, the other discipline that I'll draw on is um, art history, of course, and aesthetics. And I think the main thing here is that art history really kind of helps us to observe 
right? So observe the subjects, objects, concepts, movements, energies, bodies. And this is all done by telling stories of looking. So I think if art history has a role to play in our age of catastrophic change, it's in describing and contextualizing the visual world as it appears right now. And this kind of involves really operating in a world of affects and sensations, you know, bringing contemporary artistic practices and histories that enable us to experience the present in a way that's sort of attuned to many potential futures. I'm curious what has brought you to this study. There's a lot of different strands, and, and I think you mentioned or alluded to having a background in art. How did you wind up here pulling these ideas together? So yeah, I completed my undergrad at Brock, actually, in visual arts and English literature. And then right away, I went to Ryerson to complete my MFA in a program called Documentary Media. I always feel a bit wary of sharing the name of that program because I feel like it's misleading. Um, Most people immediately think that I went to school to become a documentary filmmaker. And though I suppose I could technically make a, a documentary because of the training I received at Ryerson. My thesis project there was a work of video art, performance-based video art that I showed in a gallery setting. So that work was called Imprint. In fact, it still is called Imprint because it's sort of ongoing. But basically, I worked in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, and I was basically making these performances for the camera not in front of an audience, in other words. And I was imprinting the landscape on different parts of my body, my skin. And so this really got me thinking about interiority and exteriority and the very porous boundaries of our identities and our bodies. And so that trajectory has really led me um, to the work that I'm doing now. But really kind of what brought me to the program at Brock, and though I don't think I would have been able to articulate this at the time that I applied, what I'm really drawn to about interdisciplinary work is this movement that's at the heart of it. And sort of like a heart, the interdisciplinary scholar has to expand and and contract, right? Not only across disciplines, but also oscillate between ways of thinking, intuitive and empirical. And I think really one of the most challenging tasks uh, in interdisciplinary work is the creation of common ground. And that involves basically integrating insights from various disciplines to create new knowledge. And in order to do this, I think movement is very important because the interdisciplinarian sort of has to shape shift in a sense, to change identities and and perspectives and paths, which fosters, you know, new ideas, new narratives and, and possible futures. And I also think, you know, the world that we're currently navigating is a really complex one, right? It's, it's overwhelming. I mean, maybe not for everyone, but for me, sometimes it feels like I'm just sort of stumbling through a web of symbols and images and sounds, like material and immaterial forces that I 
scientists can scarcely grasp or understand. But the appeal of interdisciplinary research is that collaboration is the rule, right? It's it's not the exception. It demands multiple eyes and ears, hands, sensors, brains, like automated and manual, digital and analog, machine and human, all of these come together in order to develop a more comprehensive understanding of the world we live in. So that kind of approach really appealed and to me, and it, it made sense to me. So for our listeners who are maybe not familiar with grad school and certainly with PhD programs, can you tell us a little bit about the process of a PhD or specifically of our interdisciplinary humanities PhD? What's kind of the, the process of acquiring all this uh, knowledge and creativity? Yeah, I think the very first thing that one needs to do even before you apply for the program is to research the faculty try and meet with a few of them and establish some connections between your research interests and if there might be uh, the possibility of a working relationship there. That's what I did, actually. Christine Daigle was the program director at the time that I was applying, and I went and I had a really generative conversation with her about the program, about you know the direction I was thinking of pursuing, and it appeared to me that the program was really flexible and especially in terms of accepting research creation modes of delivery or the capstone project could be research creation. So that was really appealing to me. But yeah, I mean, a supervisor, that sort of should be established before you even apply because supervisors really guide you through the program and can be integral to your success. But, you know, once you apply and are accepted, there's sort of a series of milestones And every PhD program is structured differently, but um, the interdisciplinary humanities program at Brock basically starts off with two years of coursework, and that all that coursework leads to comprehensive exams. So you have to write two written exams, and then you have one oral exam. And once you pass those, you basically move on to writing your capstone project proposal. Um, that takes place in year three, and it's a phase that I'm currently working through. And really, once that proposal is, is approved, you dedicate the remainder of your PhD to the capstone project, which upon completion, you need to publicly defend, um, not well in front of your supervisory committee, but also anyone who would also like to attend the defense. It's very intensive for obvious reasons. It's a PhD, right? So one thing that I really neglected at during the first two years, and it took COVID to actually get me in check, was that I really prioritized my productivity over everything else. And when you get into those habits, it can be really tough to transform that into something that's a little more healthy. So right now I'm really working on balancing my productivity and, and my well-being, which is tricky, but I think, you know, I'll get the hang of it eventually. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that um, you'd like us to talk about or you'd want to go back and explore anything further? There's kind of one thing that I um, that's really important to my creative process. So I'm, I'm really interested in surrealist 
techniques, one of which is automatism. It's a very kind of broad category, but it's basically this idea that it's an approach to making art that's kind of unconscious, a kind of like doing without thinking, where the artist kind of enters a space that bars the intellect or rationality from entering. And I think that in many cases, if an artist can sort of resist the intervention of intellect, the work sometimes has a chance of transcending the artist's intentions to sort of be more and do more. It really draws more on intuition than intellect. And intuition is really sort of about making connections, right? It, it brings things together, but not under the rubric of some like rational universal sameness where, you know, difference is separated in the most extreme way possible. So binary oppositions, but by kind of conducting difference into a a shared space and into relation. And this is definitely not a space that excludes reason. I think in order to be an effective practice using intuition kind of needs to be counterbalanced with reason and and logic. So yeah, I just wanted to sort of shine a light on intuition as not in opposition with intellect, but as a a kind of complementary way of thinking that can also generate new knowledge. I think also like kind of allowing your, your mind to wander beyond those constraints of rational thinking, to lose your way, so to speak, is also a way to be fully present. And to be fully present is really uh, to be capable of being in uncertainty and being in mystery. And, you know, as we've we've discussed, we live in, in really uncertain times and we need to figure out a way to be in them. And I think this kind of thinking or maybe non-thinking has relevance not only in the realm of art, but beyond sort of in the in the realm of being. Thank you very much for your for your time today. It's been lovely to hear about your research. So we'll keep an eye out for a future project down the road in, in a couple of years, I guess. Yes. And please also, if anyone is listening that sort of self-identifies as a hypersensitive individual and is interested in the project. I would love it if you would reach out. Yeah, that would be fantastic. They can certainly send us a DM on social media and we can forward forward, uh, that information to you as well. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Allison. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website brockuca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing by Serena Atella, Theme music is by Khaled Imam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.